how the 2020 short season factors into 2021 projections, an introduction to ATC, and our deep dive into undervalued corner infielders. Derek Hardy, creator of the Bat Projections, joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today on this day where they announced the Fantasy Sports Writers Awards and you were nominated again? You were nominated for, I think it was Best Article of the Year? Baseball Article of the Year. Was it the second year in a row? Uh, I, I was nominated two years ago for this uh, category. Last year, of course, I, I won the Writer of the Year Award. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. And by the way, uh, Ruben, you're included also in the nominations. The Fantasy Benefit was nominated for the Best Publication, Best Baseball Publication of the Year, and uh, you w- were in it too. So uh, you should uh, um, rejoice in celebration of the nomination. Yes, hopefully the first of many. Yes, so uh, there we go. Well, anyways, we've got a wonderful guest uh, tonight. He is from Roto Grinders. He is the author of The Bat and The Bat X Projections. Our buddy here, Derek Cardi. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, uh, our pleasure. And uh, we're here to talk about projections, and it is going to be our corner infield episode. The ATC projections are out, so uh, we can start talking about players. And it's the corner infield episode where we'll run down a couple of potential undervalued players that you might want to consider on today's show. In our strategy section, it's all about projections, and Derek Cardi has one of the best projections out there, uh, the bat and the bat X. Uh, and in running my yearly evaluation of projections and how good they would work in a game theory sense, the bat X came out as the best projection of all of them. Uh, so first of all, before we talk about your specific projection, what goes into creating projections in general? Well, if you're doing it right, lots and lots of hard work and uh, maybe not as much uh, recognition from people about how much actually goes into it. Um, But I I think more your your real question, there's probably three things that go into basically every decent projection system. You know, it goes back to, you know, Tom Tango's Marshalls, where the, the three components are regression of the mean, which basically accounts for sample size and variance. Uh, waiting of multiple years because, you know, a lot of people seem to think, you know, oh, well, this guy did this last year, so, you know, that's what he's going to do this year or whatever. Um, But you have to consider multiple years to expand your sample size because what a guy did last year isn't necessarily, like, you know, representative of who he is. And then you have to account for aging curves. Um, You know, players get older and they get either better or worse, depending on where on the curve they are. And so I think any good projection system or any decent projection system has to have those three things. And then from there, you know, there, there's lots of other things that you can layer on and, and kind of different things that go into each system's, you know, black box, if you will. So uh, Aaron, we have a mailbag question. Aaron asks, how does the bat specifically incorporate agent curves into its projections? Yeah, I mean, it incorporates it, I guess, kind of the way uh, – the way you would expect it to. It looks at historical data and it looks at how players, you know, perform historically from, you know, when they go from one age to the next. Um, the bat throws a few interesting wrinkles in, you know, it, it tries to account for, um, there's a survivorship bias that, 
you know, is maybe beyond the scope of what we want to talk about here because it's kind of technical and boring. But there's a survivorship bias that you have to account for when you do aging curves. Um, the bet breaks it down by component. So, you know, players age differently in terms of their strikeouts compared to their stolen bases. You know, basically for stolen bases, for speed, for any sort of stat like that, the aging curve is basically straight down. Players don't get better doesn't matter how old you are. If you're 20 years old, when you're 21, you should be expected to do worse in basically all your speed stats because that's kind of how aging curves work. Whereas, you know, something like power, any power stat, home runs or, you know, barrels when we talk about stat cast stuff or like anything like that, you go up for a point. You know, if you're 20 at 21, you're, you're going to have more power. You're going to get better. Eventually, you're going to come back down, you know, after you turn 28 or 30 or something like that. Um, so the bat kind of looks at every stat individually when it comes to aging curves. It looks a little bit at player profiles, you know, big, bulky, you know, DH type guys, you know, they'll age differently than the small, speedy D Gordon type guys. Um, so the bat will, you know, try to account for different things like that. But, you know, for the most part, it really is just looking at how players do, you know, when they turn 22 after being 21 last year. Right. And what do you think uh, is one or two things that really separate your model, uh, the bat and the bat X, from the way that anybody else projects who's running good projections? Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, those three general components, there are wrinkles you can throw in. Like, I don't know if other systems are are accounting for player profiles or anything like that in their aging curves. Um, But for the most part, those things are going to be fairly uniform. I think any edges you're going to get in those three things are going to be fairly small. Everyone's more or less doing it in some way, some probably similar way. Obviously, I don't know, you know, how other projection systems are formed. Everyone kind of keeps a lid on things a little bit, so I can only kind of speculate and and speak to what I do. Um, But I do think a lot of things that the bat does that I think I'm pretty sure other systems don't do Um, I I think the bat does a really good job of accounting for context. Um, It accounts for, it basically looks at every at-bat that every player or pitcher or umpire or park or anything I want to project has faced in the past. You know, if Mike Trout was in Coors Field against, you know, Ubaldo Jimenez and it was 95 degrees that day and it was a hitter's umpire, the bat knows that and it accounts for it. And so if a guy has faced you know, a really easy set of circumstances one year, then, you know, he's going to get less credit for the numbers that he puts up, that sort of thing. And then it projects for the current season after it has its underlying projection for everybody. It looks at strength of schedule. It looks at, you know, the schedule of parks that the player is going to be in, Uh, especially when we talk about interleague play, like some players are inherently going to have easier or more difficult parks and weather situations that they're going to be in this year because of how interleague play sets up. And so um, I think the bat and the bat X does, you know, a good job of that. And when we talk about the bat X in particular, um, it, it, I mean, the bat X I put out last year for the first time, for anyone who's not familiar, the big difference between the two systems is that the bat X accounts for StatCast data, which um, I know some systems are starting to do. I don't know to the extent that other ones do it, but, you know, I basically try to account for it as much as possible. I basically built a full system using StatCast and, you know, that that's kind of, you know, the the theory behind the bad X is that it accounts for all these things for barrels, for launch angles and exit velocities and not just like average exit velocity or average launch, launch angle. It looks at different subsets of them that are more predictive than just taking the average of all of the, you know, all of the at-bats. 
uh, for a player. And so um, I think that's something that really separates the bad X from, you know, from most other systems as far as I'm aware of. Right, and I can tell you that it works because uh, when uh, looking at the bad X and putting it into ATC, I can tell you that right off the bat, uh, the power numbers were so much so much better. Incorporating that StatCast data had a really meaningful effect. Um, just correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the bad X is not a pure StatCast data. You still use half weight from the bat in creating an overall projection. So you have half historical, half StatCast data. Is, is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. It's not necessarily half and half. Okay, yeah. um, again, I kind of... I, I take it by components. So basically I have the bat, which is the traditional system, doesn't use much stat cast data. And then I built a system, which I call the bat cast, um, which is just stat cast data. And then I run weights on, or run tests on historical project, uh, historical data. And I say, okay, for home runs, maybe the optimal amount of the bat is 20% the bat and 80% of the bat cast. Maybe for, you know, Babbitt, it's 50-50. Maybe for another stat, it's 70-30. Um, but yeah, that, that's more or less how I come come up with the bad X. It's a combination of these other two systems um, that each have their own specific purposes. Right. And of course, that sounds very familiar to us because with ATC, sort of do that also. We look at other projections and uh, we see which ones worked and what the right weighting is. We'll talk a little bit more about ATC later in the show. Um, now, I want to bring up the fact that the 2020 year was a short season and it's harder to project off of a short season because it's a small sample size. So as far as building the 2021 projections, a couple of questions. Number one, uh, what are you doing as far as the designated hitter? Um, last week we had Todd Zola on the show, and he basically said he thinks it's going to be a DH, so he's just incorporating DH fully. What are you doing in the bad X right now? I'm assuming that there's going to be a DH in the NL, and I'd like to say it's you know something as a uh... – as highbrow as me being like, yeah, I really think there's a great chance there's going to be DH this year. No, I just was like, you know what? There might be a DH. I don't want to rechange all my code again to pretend there isn't and then have MLB come out in February and say, you know what? There's going to be a DH. So I just left it because last year we had a DH. All the code is set up for a DH. Um, if they really aren't going to have one, I'll go in and change it. But for now, I kind of think they will. And uh, it makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> And what weight are you gonna are you gonna assign for the 2020 results? This is a question for both of you. What weight do you put in? Because the sample size it wasn't huge, but it was enough to really get a hang of who's over who was overachieving and who was underachieving. Right, and that's a question I think a lot of fantasy people are kind of talking about. And I don't again I don't know how other systems handle it, but it's something that the bat kind of inherently just you know is able to account for which is really nice i haven't had to do anything special really to account for it you know the the bat says okay basically the way the weighting system of the bat works is there's two components to the weighting it's how recent the data is obviously more recent data is almost always more relevant than older data and uh, and and uh, sample size. So you know, just because 2020 is more recent, it's going to get you know that boost in you know from that part of it. But if the player only had 100 at bats, then you know the weighting is going to be lower because of that. And so the bat just kind of naturally, organically accounts for that already. So there's nothing I've had to you know to change. So I'll answer that because uh, I actually wrote an article about this uh, with with some of Derek's input. I asked a bunch of people who write projections like Todd and, and Derek um, what they are doing, and there's a range. The more automated systems 
our account, let's say, for example, a, a normal weight f- weighting of the last three years is 50, 30, 20. 50% for the previous year, 30% for the year before, and 20% for two years out. Um, the more automated systems, uh, like the BAT, will just say it's a small sample size, so you have to weight it as a small sample size, a year old. Uh, if you do the math, it'll actually come out to a weighting of about 27%. Uh, which means that 2019 gets weighted even more than 2020, something that we usually don't see. But because it's only a third of a season, you're going to end up having more weight given to the previous year. The more manual systems, uh, like Mike Podhorse does his own uh, pod system, he's not looking at that. He's looking at what was the walk rate last year, what was the strikeout rate last year, and he's basically saying, well, I think that that's more indicative of the future. I need to really treat these rates as a normal year. Sure, it's not perfect, but he's much more reliant on the current year. So if you do the math, he's going to give weight something around a 45%. Um, That's really the range. The answer is somewhere between 27% and 45%. Um, Rudy Gamble gave a really good suggestion. He's basically just saying do something in the middle. And don't take the 60-game sample as 60 games. Don't take it as 162 games. Take it as something in the middle. He suggested call it a 100-game season. I'm a little bit more on the downside. I'll consider it an 81-game season. I'm basically saying count it a little bit more than you should, but not as much as always. Uh, I would count it for a half a season. And it comes out to the weight should be about a third. You should be taking projections and rates and taking one-third from last year. Um, so there you go. Uh, question about park factors. We talked about that last week with Todd Zola. Um, what are you doing in terms of park factors for some of the unknown places? You know, Buffalo counted for last year. We we learned that some uh, stadiums are incorporating a humidor uh, that unknowingly last year they've already incorporated a humidor. How do you handle park factors in your model? Yeah, so I mean, I handle them. I think similarly to the way other people do, at least in the at, at least fundamentally. You know, you look at you know what the what the team and their opponents did in the home park, what they did in road parks, and and you compare the two and you come up with kind of a, you know, a, a baseline that says, okay, in 2019, you know, Great American Ballpark boosted home runs by by 30% um, because you're kind of holding the, the competition, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You're holding it, I don't know what, the, I'm blanking, whatever. Competition's the same at home, same on the road. So the park is really what you're isolating and you get the park factor from that. The bat throws some wrinkles in. It accounts for altitude. It accounts for fence height, fence distances, um, you know, foul ground, stuff like that. Um, And when it comes to, you know, new parks like Buffalo last year, you kind of just do the best you can. You look at, you know, what the altitude is. You look at what the the fences are. You look at all the physical properties of it. You look at historically how parks like that tend to play, and uh, you know you kind of come up with with an estimated park factor based on that. Uh, thankfully, this year we probably well actually I shouldn't say that it does sound like the Blue Jays might be playing in another new park this year. So I need to <laughs> look Florida. at uh, Dunedin or however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I need to look into that still. Okay, 
Um, you know, you mentioned earlier in the show that uh, you you're really sensitive to uh, if there was a situation, a pitcher pitched against a certain batter in a certain park. Now, last year there was tons of divisional play. It was all divisional play, or the opposite league's divisional play. Sounds like your system is going to incorporate that quite a bit more than other systems going forward, right? It's just not a, an ERA. It's not an ERA. It's an ERA b- broken down into where they pitched and who it was against. Um, I would expect your system for a guy like Trevor Bauer to be uh, more pessimistic because he only pitched against NL Central. Sure, he had a wonderful year, but it was against a much better competition. Do you see that for Bauer and other examples like that? Yeah, so I mean, that is something that I think gives the bat, um, you know, an advantage over other systems. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about, again, you know, accounting for you know, where where and who players faced last year because not only over the course of a full season, you know, 2018, 2019, anything before 2020, we have, you know, 200 inning pitch, innings pitched for, you know, a full season of a starting pitcher. And a lot of that context can, can even out to an extent. You know, there are still guys at the extremes who have faced a really easy set of circumstances or a hard set of circumstances, but it's not like anything crazy. Over a, you know, a season that's only a third of the amount of games and in which the schedules are very, um, you know, very strict in, in who they were playing very, you know, a lot of overlap from game to game because of, you know, COVID and the travel restrictions and everything else. Um, accounting for that context, I think is very important for 2020 stats. And uh, the bat just naturally does that, which is really nice. The bat does like Bauer, like it likes him. It, I think. Yes, it does. It looks. I mean, I'm looking at his Fangraphs page. Like it likes him more than Steamer. Yes, it does. Um, more than more than ATC. You know, yep. right on line with Zips. So, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, it is accounting for that for Bauer. Um, but maybe there's other things about him that it likes that that other systems don't. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, now, just that we you talked a little bit about the bat versus the bat X um, in terms of what goes into it. Let's talk a little about what comes out of it. For which players have you seen the largest difference in value, uh, both up and down, right, between the bat and the bat X? Who comes out better and who comes out worse, and maybe a little bit why? Yeah, so uh, so there's a few guys. The guy that, that comes out the best in terms of 5x5 five five value is Dansby Swanson, um, who's, you know, not a name that anyone's like, oh, yeah, I really want to draft Dansby Swanson. But Dansby Swanson had a really good year last year. He used to be an elite prospect, um, the Bad X really liked him going into last year, and it looks to be easily the high man on him again. Like, it thinks Swanson is a legitimately good hitter, and there are some other systems. You know, Steamer and Zips have him well below average still. So, like, it is a big gap when you look at, you know, the Bad X compared to other systems on Swanson. But uh, but I'm buying into it because you look at his StatCast data, and especially, you know, from from 2019 on, 2019 and 2020, his stuff was great. In 2017 and 2018, his barrel percentage was 14th percentile and 23rd percentile. In 2019, 2020, it was 68th and 78th. And you look at a bunch of different stats, you know, his launch angle in, in you know, the home run zone, his exit velocity numbers, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, like he just got way better in 2019. And so the bad X is really buying into that and saying, okay, you know, we can't necessarily, you know, look at his 2017 where only had six home runs. Like, his power metrics have become much better since then, and we need to give them more weight, essentially. And so so it really likes a guy like uh, like Dansby Swanson. Um, 
it likes Mookie Betts once again. Last year, it was really high on Mookie Betts relative to the bat, relative to other systems. Um, it thought Mookie Betts should have been in the conversation for the number one pick, and no one was talking about Mookie there. And uh, it, it's, it's you know, really high on Mookie once again this year, higher than the bat, higher than other systems. Um, and some young guys, which is really nice. Um, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., it really loves, like, his power numbers, even though people, you know, knock him a little bit for uh, for his launch angle stuff. Like, his his exit velocity stuff is is pretty incredible. It's all, like, 99th percentile, no matter how you split it up, like, basically across the board. So uh, it really likes Vlad. And, and it really likes Luis Robert, which is interesting because the bat really didn't like him a whole lot coming into last year. The bat's always a little bit skeptical on prospects the way a lot of systems are because there's so many elite prospects that come up and are kind of just, you know, okay. You know, they're, they're not Fernando Tatis right away. They're not Ronald Acuna right away. They're Dansby Swanson. They're Yohan Moncada. You know, they're guys like that. But the bat X really seems to like Robert. Um, might even be the high man on him at this point, which is uh, which is really interesting and kind of cool because uh, you know it, it can be high on these guys with a small sample now because we have the Statcast data that is you know a little bit more reliable at smaller samples. And before you go on to the the players that, that the bat likes better, uh, interesting like against Steamer for example, um, Dansby Swanson's uh, Steamer is low on bets low. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. though Steamer is very high on, and they have been for a while. I remember the original projection that came out of Steamer before he even played a game was for something like he had a three ten batting average. Uh, for some reason, there's something about Vlad, and I, I'll have to ask Jared Cross. Um, it just continues to love Vladimir Guerrero. It, Steamer's still the high system on that. Um, uh, some other guys. Uh, Kettle Marte, the bat X really likes uh, versus the bat. Andrew Benintendi, Gene Segura, Avisail Garcia are some other ones to mention. All right, let's do where does the bat X show not such a good result as compared to the bat? Um, yeah, so uh, the bat the bat is much higher on Alex Bregman than the bat X is, and I think that makes total sense. It was uh, the same thing last year, basically. The bat X was much lower on Bregman wound up having not a very good season, which was really nice to see. Um, his uh, his raw numbers, like his surface numbers, have been really, really good for the last like you know three years essentially. You know, 2018, 2019, he you know averaged like a 405 wOBA and like 35 home runs. But the bad X was like, I'm not buying into that because you look under the hood at his Statcast stuff. And it is not very good at all. Like 2019, he had a 23rd percentile barrel uh, rate. Last year, that dropped to 20, 21st percentile. You know, all of his exit velocity percentiles are in like the teens or the mid to low 20s. You know, his uh, his exit velocity on fly balls is 29th percentile. His percentage of balls in the air that grow 100 miles per hour or more is 23rd percentile. Like his Statcast numbers just are not very good. And so the bat is uh, is going to be higher on Bregman because it's ignoring the stat cast stuff and the bat X is going to be a lot lower on him because it's like I'm not buying into these raw stats because the, the stat cast stuff doesn't support it to the extent that he's, you know, performed. 
Right. ATC is actually low on Alex Bregman compared to other projections. Uh, it, uh, I mean, ATC incorporates a lot of different things, but uh, yeah, good to hear it. And this is our corner infield episode, uh, so good that we're talking about him. Uh, some other guys that the bat is lower on, uh, Eric Hosmer and Eugenio Suarez, Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt. If you notice, these are a lot of corner infielders. It seems that there's a trend uh, in the bat X really uh, enjoying... Uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, in, uh, the, the bat uh, being a little bit higher than the bat X in some of these corner infielders, and maybe that means that if you're interested in the bat X, you're not going to take a lot of these corners. Do you notice that it's a trend with a position? I have noticed that. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, you know, it might be that there's a little bit of bias in, in the bat, you know, where the bat is is just naturally higher on these corner guys for some reason. I'm not really sure, but it is it is something I've noticed. Right. Yeah, no, I'm looking at, like, the top uh, 12 list, and over half the people are from the corner infield position. So just interesting to, to note that. Um, uh, Ruvain, any, any thoughts, questions uh, about uh, the bat, the bat X that uh, we should ask uh, Derek here? Um, no, I think you pretty much covered it very well, and this, this is a good tutorial for anyone who didn't understand it now before. They'll understand it now and hopefully be able to incorporate it using other systems because, yes, you can use one system when you when you try to draft a team, but sometimes incorporating a, lot, incorporating a lot of different systems together really does a lot more. It sheds a lot more light on different players. Yep, that's a good segue to our ATC projections um, segment here. Before we talk about uh, some players that might be undervalued that we should look at, since this is the first episode talking about ATC projections, a little bit of background to the model that I created here. Um, you know, looking at any one projection system, and of course, Derek's uh, the bat is fantastic. Uh, is a, it's an answer. It's one one thought, one way of looking at things. But in general, I believe in the wisdom of crowds, in that you can learn a lot from what. A few people say, a few experts, of course, say, um, how different are they? Right? It's not just what they say, but how different are they from each other? If they're all in agreement, it's more confident for me to know. Um, ATC works a lot like hurricane models do. And I give this analogy that, you know, if you ever notice w when you have a hurricane model, and you probably have seen the three- and five-day cones, like where there's a range of, of – places that the hurricane can go, it go a little bit north, a little bit south. And maybe you've seen the spaghetti models where you see like 10 or 15 different models track and they take sort of an average and give you a center line. Here's the average of what they say. Well, that's really what ATC projections do. Those center line is compiled not by just taking a straight average of them, but taking different components of each model. Maybe there's a model that really incorporates precipitation uh, better. Maybe there's another model that incorporates temperature better or wind speed better. And it takes a different weight of each model, and it blends them together and then and then models out that full aggregate projection. That's what ATC does. It takes the best parts of all of them. How do I find out the best parts? Well, I study them. I compile a history of a number of years, testing what the projection said before the season, how the season ended up, and how accurate they were by statistic. Not only how accurate they were, but I run regressions to determine what's the best way to combine them. Maybe I take 10% of one and 20% of this for pitcher strikeouts. Maybe it's 30% of one and 2% of another. Or maybe there's some projections that really aren't significant enough and shouldn't even be in a certain statistical model. And that's how we, we, we get that. Um, this year, um, I have some new metrics that I'm putting out. Uh, they're up right now on CBS Sportsline. They will be up on Fangraphs soon. There's some volatility metrics. Because we ha I have all the underlying 
projections, you know, 10 different projections or whatever it is, um, you can get a standard deviation as far as how volatile are the projections from each other. Maybe for one player, it's all over the place. I, I remember Garrett Hampson for years, all over. Some projections said he's wonderful. Some say he's terrible. And there's, for some players, a very tight range. This player is a $20 player. He's a $21 player, $20 player. Um, and you can tell now which which are the more accurate projections in terms of the confidence, right? Um, you, I also have a statistic this year that I'm putting out. It's called skewness, into projection skewness, where not only do you know how separated they are, but are projections skewed up or skewed down, meaning there's just one – the average is down because there's one outlier projection up or down. And you know that, yes, here's the average that ATC says, but actually there's some upside to them, or actually there's some downside to them. So um, stay tuned for that. Check Fangraphs uh, and CBS Sportsline to see these new statistics, and we'll talk about them as we go on with doing some of the undervalued players. Um, as we've said on before in the show, we do not talk about every single player. We do not say, here's a rank of the top 10 shortstops, and let's go through each one and why they're ranked above another. It's not for us. We like to say, here's what ATC shows as a higher value than the ADP, a higher value than the market, and maybe there's a, a, a nice bargain to be had if you follow ADP. And let's see if we agree. We don't always agree on the on the uh, projected value by ATC. Sometimes we think that maybe there's something not incorporated. Maybe there's an injury issue that we think he's going to be better or worse. And so we'll highlight these players to get a sense of who we should focus on in getting possible bargains, and we'll do a deep dive ourselves. So every episode, we will do a different position. Um, we're going to do all the, some corner infielders today with everybody. We'll get everybody's insights and deep dive into the ATC projection. So our first one is Raphael Devers, Raphael Devers, uh, from the Boston Red Sox. He was amazing, utterly amazing in 2019. He was quite good in 2020. Uh, we'll go to you first, Derek. What are your thoughts about Rafael Devers? Do you see them as, as worth buying in 2021? Is he a bargain? Is he someone good to have? Would you stay away from him? What are your thoughts on the men? Yeah, so I'm not – like I haven't done any mock drafts yet. I obviously haven't done any real drafts yet. So I'm not super up on like where people are being drafted now, where their ADPs are. But I know Devers is a guy that people generally tend to really like and – I kind of just think he's he's a guy, you know, the, the bat is basically in line with other systems on him, but I think there's going to be non-projection people, you know, people who, um, you know, they, they just follow touts or like they just don't look at projections, they, you know, they go off their gut that are probably going to be drafting Devers a lot higher than, than he probably deserves to be, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, you know, uh, he's had one great season and, and last year he definitely fell off a little bit. Now it's a small sample size, everything else. Um, but it's not like I'm expecting Devers to necessarily bounce all the way back um, to where he was in 2019. Okay, Ruvain, your thoughts? Well, Devers last year, if if we extrapolate the entire season to being a 150 or 162 game season, he would have hit. He was on pace to hit over 30 home runs. He was on pace to have possibly over 100 RBIs, 110 RBIs. He was on pace to have 
90 runs or more. His K rate was similar to that of 2018. It was 10% higher than 2019, so that's something to notice. His BABIP was lower last year than 2019, but still it was higher in 2018, so that's kind of a mix there. But he did raise his medium and hard contact last year, and he only had 10% soft contact all year, which means that it's, that's a very good sign. He's only 24, and he does still have some value there because normally he steals like he steals like five to six bases. Last year he had zero stolen bases. If he could throw a five stolen bases, six stolen bases in there, that's that's the difference between him and the next guy we're going to talk about because he can even give you some stolen bases out there. Yeah, Devers um, had eight stolen bases back in 2019. He had five uh, in 2018. Uh, that is a big thing, especially when you're drafting in the early rounds because you can't pull a zero out of out of players. Uh, he is going at the very, very end of the third round in 15-team leagues. Um, I see him as a big bargain. In terms of, in, in, an, in an auction especially, he is a complete value. Um, you know, 2019 Really, had he had two different years. From July 23rd to August 17th, he hit just two homers, five ribbies, and he batted 183. But that was BABIP aided. For the rest of the season, from August 18th on, he batted 309, nine homers in that short span, 38 RBIs. He really pretty much was back to what he did in 2019. So the question is, who is he? I think he's more of, of that player in the last month. Um, he's certainly not going to be as good as 2019, but I believe the second half of 2021 20, more, he's only 24 years old. It was a bad month. And I think that you're getting the recency bias discount because if you look at the overall numbers, remember, one month out of two is a bad, but when you do one, man, one month out of six in a regular season, it's going to look a lot better. I think it's a slam dunk. So in a draft for him, I'd question it only because you might have to take either a pitcher or or uh, some hitter that maybe can steal a little bit more or gives you a little bit more of that uh, in terms of roster construction. For an auction, he's a slam dunk to get. Convince you uh, otherwise, uh, Derek? No, I mean, if, if you think that, that he his projection, like what, what is his ADP right now? Like where is he going? Where, where do you have to draft him at? Uh, 41, okay, the end so of the third round. Okay, so I would have thought he'd be higher than that. I think that's probably fine. Like, I'm looking over his StatCast numbers right now. They're all more or less the same as they were in 2019 or better in some cases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think he did overperform in 2019. But, I mean, I can see now why the bat is expecting pretty solid improvement over what he did in 2020. Right. Let's move on to Anthony Rendon. I'm going to go with Ruvain first here. Anthony Rendon, last year, I um, mean, he batted average, batting average of 286 is fine. What Where he came, came down and fell down was uh, run production. He only had 29 runs and 31 RBIs, which is good, not great, not Anthony Rendon level. Um, is Anthony Rendon somebody that we should be considering in uh, in 2021? Again, his, his ADP is very close to Devers. He's going late third round. I don't know. I don't see as much as you would say upside as opposed to Devers because Rendon, he is turning 31. He's in the second year of this massive contract, so he may have a little bit less stress on him doing this. He's a career 290 hitter, so that's I'm not concerned about the batting average. He was on pace 
for a 28 homer, 90 RBI, 90 run season, which is good for him. But that's not what they, they signed him for. They signed him for even more than that. They signed him off of his career year. Um, he did have his lowest Babbitt since 2016, and he happened to go opposite field, to go opposite to hit it opposite field less last year than ever in his entire career. So that's something to watch for. If he if you see him go on the opposite field in, in spring training, that's an excellent sign. Also, he does have the possibility of getting steals. He also didn't have that many steals last year. Um, most projections are projecting only like two or three steals. So again, this is a guy if you're going to draft really high up, you're not going to get. It's it's maybe be a, a four category for four category guy instead of a five. I, I'm much higher on Devers than on and Rendon here. Um, Rendon, StatCast numbers took a nosedive. His barrel rate went from 11% down to 6%. His hard hit rate now is down below 40%. Um, you know, I think the run production isn't going to be as good as it was on, on the Nationals. The Nationals were a fantastic lineup, and uh, who knows? Uh, hopefully it'll be a little bit better, but um, you don't have that lock that it was. Um, the price on him is, again, for a guy who's only going to get two, three steals, uh, you know, I, I think that in a, in a draft, you need to turn your attention elsewhere. Uh, in an auction, I think that is a possibility that he can be undervalued. Um, I'm more interested in other people at, at this price. Uh, what about you, Derek? Thoughts on Rendon? Yeah, I think I'm kind of with you guys where, you know, I prefer other guys at this price. You know, if it's Rendon or Devers, I probably lean towards Devers. Like you said, some of Rendon's stuff uh, in terms of StatCast numbers did, you know, take a hit last year. Barrels were way down. Pretty much all of his exit velocity stuff across the board was way down. Um, even in terms of, you know, stolen bases, I think he can probably grab a handful. But but his sprint speed has been in really, really precipitous decline. 2016, he had a 77th percentile sprint speed. Last year, it was 37th percentile. So, like, it's going way down the way you expect, you know, speed to. But, but it's really fallen off. And especially if the power stuff is, you know, maybe a question. Um, you know, he, he's just a guy that, you know, I probably prefer other people at that ADP. Um, but he is probably going to give you more batting average than than anybody at the position aside from maybe Nolan Arenado. Like I do think he's a guy who can hit, you know, 290, which which in this environment these days is uh, is really saying something. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's not so far away from from Devers. Devers, I have uh, ATC projects at a 283, Rendon 291. I would bet on Rendon over Devers, but I, it ain't all that far apart. Uh, I can see Devers going back to. 290 level and Rendon creeping down with with age so not it it's close enough that I would take some of the other stats from Devers and uh, uh, lean towards him but yes you're right Rendon is is uh, more of a lock of batting average than anybody else uh, Freddie Freeman is is the biggest lock obviously at the corner position although Rendon is third base um, let's talk about two guys on the Cubs uh, Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant a couple years ago these guys were the thing they were steady Eddies. Uh, you got to go with them every year, every place. They're gonna they're gonna be awesome for your team with the RBIs, with the runs, with the high batting average. Uh, they've faded. There's been injury concern, a lot of issues. I'm gonna go to Ruvain first on this one again because they talk a little bit about their injuries, which is always a concern for these stars. 
Yeah, I'm going to talk about Chris Bryant first then because he was the one who really battled injury. Last year, he, he was on the IL a couple of times. He dealt with an elbow issue, an oblique issue, a wrist issue, a back issue, a finger issue. So he really, really, a lot of his numbers are, are lower because of that because it just wasn't himself. He wasn't able to completely heal. And what makes me very nervous, he, he's, he's 29. Uh, he's injury plagued, as you can. He last couple of years also he had back injuries as well. I'm nervous about his power. In 2018 he hit 13 home runs. 2019 he hit 31. But last year he was on pace to hit 15. And I'm a little bit nervous about that. The one thing he does have going is his age. He is 29, and he's going into a contract year. Usually players tend to play better. First of all, 29 is their usually the peak age for power. And number two, contract years are usually the way to go. And then usually they they burst out and they have their best career year because just look what Anthony Rendon did. As for Anthony Rizzo, I was actually shocked at what I saw. I, I didn't really do a deep dive until I as we started preparing for this. His BABIP last year was 218. That is the worst BABIP he's had of his entire career. And he was still on pace to hit over 30 homers. He was still on pace to have over 80 RBIs. He had the highest barrel rate, barrel rate that he's had since 2017. He's pulling more, which is good for him, especially at Wrigley Field. So I think he is a much better lock at these numbers than Chris Bryant. All right. Thoughts, Derek? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much people are going to be overreacting to their 2020 seasons. Like, I think both of these guys are clearly going to be better than they were last year. But these were two guys that the bat, the bat X, rather, was really low on coming into 2020. And, uh, you know, seeing them be bad again it isn't really going give, to give me a lot of confidence in redrafting them. Like, a lot of their numbers are are way down. We didn't see a whole lot of rebound out of them. You know, the 2019 and, and 2020 numbers out of both of these guys are are pretty bad. You know, Chris Bryant last year, 34th percentile barrel rate, um, you know, 15th percentile exit velocity, 37th percentile max exit velocity, 19th percentile um, 100 mile per hour in the air exit velocity percentage. Like, it's just everything is just like, it, it's pretty bad for these guys. And so... Um, you know, maybe they, they reach the point where people are like, well, they're old and they're boring and they're coming off bad seasons. And so I'm just going to let them slip in drafts. And if that happens, then, then maybe there's a buying opportunity, but they're certainly not guys that I'm going out of my way to get. Well, I vastly prefer Rizzo to Bryant. So does the market. The market has Rizzo at pick 98, Chris Bryant at pick 135. So we do see that. Uh, but I, I like Rizzo anyways. You know, Rizzo, to me, he's a guy, he, he went. He actually had a great season in bunches last year, power-wise. And as Ruben mentioned, he had a pace of about 30 homers. Um, and, and he had that bad luck with Babip. Um, but if you look at his component rate, which maybe stabilizes quicker within a short season, his walk rate, his strikeout rate, they were pretty stable and pretty close to what he usually does. To me, Anthony Rizzo is a guy that I would say take what he usually does, put age regression, uh, assuming health. Obviously, health is a thing. But if you think he's healthy, uh, I think that he's definitely an acceptable uh, person to, to get. The one thing that's interesting is that projections are not in agreement with him. We have a very wide range of projections. The interstandard deviation, the interprojection standard deviation I have is $5.6, meaning that there's a, a nice range of uh, over $5.5 uh, that incorporate 68% of the, of the projections. Uh, it's a statistical term. It's a lot. Um, 
the maximum that you would generally get uh, for players is somewhere between 6 and $7 in standard deviation, and he's almost there. So projections aren't in agreement. Not that stable there. Uh, I like him better than some projections say. I don't think he's a slam dunk of a player. I think that if he drops a little bit further in the round and you could use some five ca- uh, four and a half category help, let's put it this way, uh, stolen bases, he's actually not a zero. He's going to steal a half a dozen bases. Um, maybe maybe with age he'll steal a bit less, but projections are still giving him six stolen bases. And don't discount that. I think that when you have players in the middle who give you six along the way, I think that's fine. Um, and whereas Chris Bryant, um, I see skills are down. His strikeout rate is now up from 23% to 27%. His barrel rate all the way plummeted down to 5.5. Projections don't really see much of a rebound. Um, I don't see uh, a big upside to him. And he even said today, I, I, I saw an article where he even was quoted as saying, I don't enjoy playing baseball anymore. I don't know if you really want to pick a player on your fantasy team who says, I don't enjoy baseball. I think we want somebody who wants to come to work and, and be happy. Um, I, I don't know if we have a... <laughs> Take take happiness into account in our projections, Derek. But uh, that's not good, right? <laughs> no, I mean it's really rare that you hear a player come out and say that. Like all, we, you know, we make fun of you know people who take into account. Well, this guy says he's in the best shape of his life. This guy says he's you know coming to play this year. And and then the the obvious retort is always, well, does a player ever say that he doesn't want to come to play? That he hates baseball? And apparently now there's a player who's saying that. So like. like uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not a great sign. <laughs> well, isn't isn't it a sign if the if the Cubs analytic team decide to trade away their best pitcher, Yu Darvish, and not go for it? It means something. They don't really believe in their core players. It means they don't think they're going to really be able to contend. Because if you're going to contend, you're not going to trade away your ace. Yes, it has to do with some money, but you're not going to do that if you think your guys are going to all bounce back. Yeah, and I think it's very possible that they're waiting for a little bit of bounce back from them during the season to trade. So Darvish had a near, uh, you know, Cy Young Award type season last year. Uh, now's the time to trade him to get the maximum value. I think with these guys, you need a little bit of value. Show that they're healthy. Show that they're healthy in the first part of 2021, and trade them somewhere in the middle of the season. Get as many chips that way. Um, I think that's the method, which tells you what they exactly what Ruvain said. What what they believe in them. Uh, let's move on to Josh Bell. The Bat X really, really likes Josh Bell this year uh, better than anybody else. Now, in the past, you know of our love for Josh Bell, so uh, I'm guessing you agree with that this year. Is that right, Derek? Yeah, I do. Um, it seems like the Bat X in particular, like you said, really loves Josh Bell, um, is really not super concerned about his small sample 2020. Um, it, it's it's really seeing a bounce back to to almost to where he was in 2019, and uh, and I'm kind of on board with that. You know, like I think there are still plenty of good signs. Like his exit velocity numbers are all, you know, completely in line basically with with what he did in 2019. Maybe small dips, but they're all still really good. Um, and uh, and the park shift is going to be really nice for him. You know, getting out of PNC Park, which. Uh, you know, he's a switch hitter when he's hitting from the right side. That, that is a really bad park for power. Not as bad hitting from the left side, but uh, Nationals Park is definitely going to be a park upgrade for him. And when we talk about strength of schedules, they get they get the, the AL East this year. So he's going to get to play in Yankee Stadium, in Fenway, in, you know, uh, Camden, in, in Rogers Stadium or, or Dunedin, which I guess people are speculating is going to be a hitter's park. So, like, it's, a, it's probably a fa- favorable schedule for him now. And so between that and the underlying skills and what looks to me like a, 
a really low ADP, I think Bell is is a is a really strong target. All right, move in. Now, for those players who've been playing for a while, I'm going to make a comparison. Are we going to have a Bell? Are we going to have the J Bell, who's only good for one or two years and that's it? Or are we going to start getting more of the George Bell type player, where they're more consistent, hitting 25 to 40 home runs every year? Last year, he was on pace for 25 home runs. He's still, even, that's, even with batting 40 points below his career batting average, his soft contact rate has gone down every year since 2016, and his home run to fly by rate was similar to that in 2019. With all that stuff, and he's playing in, in Washington, and he's probably going to be batting behind Juan Soto, I think this is a buy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> ATC has, in a 15-team mixed 5x5 five five setting, Josh Bell worth $15, whereas his auction equivalent value is somewhere like around $8, $9. He's a tremendous buy, according to ATC. Now, he's not as aggressive on the homers as uh, the Bad X. The Bad X has him at about 34 homers. ATC is at 28 homers. Uh, but even with the more tame value, we're talking about a guy who's going in the 11th, 12th rounds, but probably should be going three, four rounds higher. Um, the run production is there. The The most important thing about these power guys is to know is that if you're batting fourth, I don't care if you're batting on the Orioles, you're going to get RBIs, okay? And he's going to be batting on the Nationals, who are certainly not a weak lineup. You got Juan Soto, Trey Turner. Um, it, it's a good crew. Uh, so that is going to improve. And remember, run production is 40% of your offensive statistics in uh, Roto Leagues. Um, now, in terms of exit velocity and other stat cast metrics, uh, StatCast has shown there's been no decline at all. Uh, there's nothing wrong with last year. Uh, he is pretty much who he is. Um, his component stuff, that's trending a little bit down. His strikeout rate blipped a little bit last year. His walk rate, a little bit down, but he has been a fantastic— I mean, it's still at a very interesting and very excellent 10%. Um, and, of course, the walk rate going down, that might have been from just a terrible Pirates lineup last year. He is not as tight a projection. I've said in the past that he's a low-variance player— He's not a low-variance player this year. Projections are more all over the place. They're not ridiculously all over the place, but they're maybe a little bit more above average than the normal player. But he has an interprojection skew, which is positive, meaning the ATC projection, from it, you get more projections going upwards. So I see some very positive thing here. I think that if he hits 40th percentile of what he can do, you're still a big profit for him. Uh, I loved him two years ago. I think he is a wonderful pick, even where he's going uh, right now. I, I, the Nationals are not trading for him for, for no reason. I, I really like this this bell for this year. Let's move on to another guy that uh, you might be bad X is not high on, Eric Hosmer. I've loved Eric Hosmer for quite a little bit. Derek, uh, what are your thoughts on the guy? Is is the, the new approach to launch angle working for him? You think he's going to be better than some of what the, the bad X is showing historically for him? Yeah, so I was surprised to see that that the bad X is is very low on Hosmer, and it's one of the, the guys that uh, that the bad X is low on even relative to the bat. So you would think with uh, with this narrative that, you know, Hosmer's trying to, to increase his launch angle, and last year he was really good with it. Um, that the bat X would like him more than the bat, and it doesn't. Um, and I was really surprised to see that. But I think part of it is is sample size. You know, Hosmer, you know, spent part of the year hurt, I guess, last year. I'm trying to remember, but he only got yeah. about 150 plate appearances. So, like, he didn't get as many as as a lot of these other guys that we've been talking about. So the sample size is smaller on him. 
and and you look at what he actually did with his launch angle, and yeah, it, it did get higher, but it wasn't like this massive shift. You know, he went from, in 2018, 2019, he was uh, 0th percentile and 1st percentile in terms of his launch angle, so like he was really not hitting the ball in the air. But it only went up to 22nd percentile in 2020. It's not like he was like really launching the ball in the air or anything. Uh, if you look at his launch angle on on his hardest hit balls, in 2019, he was 5th percentile. In 2020, he was 11th percentile. Like, it's not that drastic. Um, now, he did hit uh, a lot more balls in kind of the home run zone in terms of his launch angle, which is nice. But, you know, it's just not a guy, especially with that sample size, that I guess the bat X is, uh, is, is really buying into here. So, um, again, I'm surprised by it, but... You know, when push comes to shove, I tend to trust the projections more than the narrative or or my own kind of, uh, you know, biases. So, you know, one of the faults of projections, and it's not your fault because, uh, you know, this is projections here, um, especially in a small sample size because a player was injured, and especially in this year where 2020 was a small sample size to begin with, is it possible that we're not giving any improvement or not enough credit to Eric Hosmer in projections as to what he might have, because he did have a different level. I mean, he was on the pace for a lot more homers. He was, he was doing great with steals. Uh, he was on the pace for almost 100 RBIs last year. Is it possible that the projections are just not crediting him enough for any imp- skills improvement last year because of the injury and the small sample size of the year? I, I would say that in a mean sense, no. Like, I think they're crediting him exactly as much as they should. But I would say that he's a guy who has a wide a wide range of potential outcomes in 2021 because there was some skills improvement that we saw last year, but the sample size was so small that we don't know for sure if it's if it's for real or not. And that's kind of the whole point of a projection system really is to be able to handle those sample sizes, to be able to say, okay, well, historically, when a guy does this in this small of a sample size, you know, this is what he tends to do in the future on average. And I guess on average, when a guy does what Hosmer did, you know, he, he regresses the next year pretty heavily. And so maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, you know, if, uh, you know, and it's when, when we talk about projections, I think something that a lot of people miss a lot of times is that a projection isn't saying, well, the bad exit projects Eric Cosmer for a 313 Woba. And so that's what Eric Cosmer is going to do this year. A projection is really a range of outcomes. Really, it is an average of all, po- a weighted average of all possible outcomes. And for Eric Hosmer, I think that range is very wide. There, there's a scenario where Eric Hosmer's um, changes are completely for real, and he goes back out and he repeats what he did last year, but over 600 at bats this year. Or he's even better. You know, he, he learned things from last year from trying this stuff. He raises his launch angle again, and then he just is off the charts. You know, but then you know it could also just be that you know it was random, and he goes back to being bad next year. Um, and so we just don't know. And so a projection is trying to weigh those potential outcomes, but especially for a guy like Hosmer. Um, we're not pretending to have, you know, the the exact definitive answer here. There, There is uncertainty for sure. Yeah, no no doubt, no doubt. Um, all right, no, very interesting to, to hear that. Um, you know, with Eric Hosmer, I, I did an article, actually the article that was nominated for uh, Baseball Article of the Year, uh, and it's good to look at some of the Z-scores and to see how balanced a person is in terms of multi-categories. Um, there's really nothing that Hosmer does bad. He has a 
positive Z-score in literally every category. He's going in the late ninth round, and yet he's not below average for the player pool in a 15-team league in, in anything. Stolen bases, he's pretty much at average because he'll give you six, seven stolen bases. Homers, he's average. He'll give you 25, stolen, 25, 20 to 25 homers. Runs, he's above average. Batting average, he's above average in today's game. RBIs, he's well above average. So if you're looking at a guy to pad categories, he's the kind of guy that if he's valued well, he's an automatic get. Um, if if he's going for a three, four uh, round bargain, scoop him up because he'll give you it. If he has a bad year in runs, a bad year in, in stolen bases, he'll, he can boost it up in another category. These are uncorrelated categories. He can be good at one. Maybe he'll run more. He'll he'll uh, hit homers less. Um, it's a good guy to pad for value. That's my thought on him. Um, now, in terms of the amount of the bargain, before this year, he was an absolute bargain. He was going for seven, eight auction dollars less. Now he's only about a two, three dollar bargain. So I don't love him for the price this year. But again, if he falls. Uh, I like the type of player in terms of component because he doesn't do anything great other than RBIs, but he does nothing bad. And uh, I'm for for volume here. In terms of um, interprojection standard deviation, it's a very low number. It's only a $2 standard deviation. So projections are sort of an agreement other than the bad X. The bad X is the low one. Everybody else is pretty much in line with value for him. So I'm pretty sure I know what I'm getting with Eric Hosmer, I think. And I believe that projections maybe don't count the new approach because of the injury. And if that's true, it's only upside. So I like Hosmer. Uh, for that, not as much as last year's, but I still like him if you can get a little bit of a bargain. Ruben? And the, the injury aspect, he had a broken finger, which took him out for a, a certain, a, a significant period of time, and he had a GI issue. So those things are completely out of his control. It's not like it, there's no wear and tear issues that are going on, so there's no concern about that. He is going into his age 31 season, so that may be, you know, may play into it a little bit, but he was on pace for over 30 home runs, which he's never done before. He was on pace for over 100 RBIs, which he's never done before. His barrel rate, his barrel percentage was, was over, is in double digits. It was ten. It was that ten, close to ten percent, which he's never done before. So he may have figured something out. He may be cluing in on what some of his teammates are doing. When Fernando Tatis started to, uh, to blossom, maybe he's doing a little bit what he's doing, watching, learning from the from the younger kids, trying to emulate them a little bit, and just honing his own craft. So there's a possibility that you will have the 2020 version of Hosmer in 2021. Next two players. Very similar ADP, very similar ATC value. Uh, ADPs of uh, 176 and 181 for Reese Hoskins, Miguel Sano. ATC is projecting them at about a $12 type player with uh, auction equivalent of about a $4 bargain. Um, they're slightly different players, but they've got a lot in common. Do you have a favorite or preference? What do you see, good and bad? Uh, start with you, Derek. Reese Hoskins and Miguel Sano. Yeah, Hoskins is a guy that uh, that I really like. I would take him over Sano. He's a guy that um, I have a special fondness for. Like, if you remember at the start of last year, like he was absolutely awful, and and for DFS purposes, he was really cheap. And the bat and the bat X were like, he's not doing anything differently. He's the same guy he's always been, and he's really cheap. So like, keep playing him. And everyone was like, 
oh, I don't want to play Eric Hosmer. He sucks. He's terrible. And he wound up having the best season of his career, you know, aside from his rookie year, basically, because uh, he was doing exactly the same thing as he always had been. And so I really like Eric Hosmer, or uh, Reese Hoskins, rather. It looks like the bad X is the highest on him of any of the systems on Fangraphs. And, uh, and I'm buying into it, you know, like his numbers last year, especially his stat cast stuff were as good or better than they've always been. His barrel, his barrel percentage was 94th percentile. That's the best it's been since his rookie year. Um, you know, his, uh, percentage of air balls that went hundred miles per hour or, or more, um, 80th percentile best since his rookie year. Um, you know, max exit velocity, 72nd percentile best of his career. Like his stuff has just been, been great. You know, his launch angle, his launch angle on his hardest hit fly balls. That's all in the mid 90th percentiles. Like, um, his power numbers are just awesome. He plays for the Phillies in a great home run park. And similar to, to Josh Bell, he gets that, uh, that strength of schedule boost playing in the power parks in, in the AL East in interleague play. So I really like Hos- uh, Hoskins. What about Miguel Sano? I think Sano is fine. Sano is a guy that I think people tend to uh, maybe overrate a little bit sometimes. Like his batting average is going to be completely terrible. Like his strikeouts are always going to be massive. It was 44% strikeout rate last year. Um, yeah, he's going to hit a bunch of home runs. Um, the bat is maybe a little lower on those home runs than some other systems, but I, uh, I, I prefer Hoskins. Okay. Ruvain thoughts on the, on the pair. Well, first of all, let's talk a little about Reese Hoskins. He had a modified Tommy John surgery. He had an internal brace repair, which is slightly different than the normal Tommy John, but it's the basic same idea. He had it in October of the last year. Recovery time is usually between four to six months. We saw him. He posted a, a video on, on either his Instagram or Twitter that he was hitting in a batting cage already at the end of December. So they've been told, Joe Girardi actually said he's on pace to be ready for opening day. If he is... That's great. I don't think he opening day is that my own opinion. Is, I don't think it's, it's that realistic. I think he'll probably get maybe toward the mid of April or end of April to be his full self again. Um, so, you know, taking that into into uh, into uh, into account, I actually like Miguel Sano a little bit better. Reese Hoskins, um, his hard hit rate was down by almost 15 percent last year, but he was still on pace for over 30 home runs. Um, and I think that may have been a little bit because of the injury. He may have been playing through this injury for a while. So, you know, they, that may be taken into account. But Miguel Sano, he was healthy last year. He was on pace to hit close to 40 home runs. I think a lot's going to um, matter whether or not Nelson Cruz resigns with the Twins because if he has that little help in the lineup, he'll be just as good. Um, his, his career batting average is not that great. His Babbitt was on par with last year. He had a career-high barrel rate, and his hard hit rate was actually below his 2019 rate now norm they're both the exact same age they're both 27 years old so if you had to pick between one or two if reese hoskins plays for the entire season you get everything out of him i like reese hoskins if reese hoskins misses like a month or so i think they're about par so um i'll tell you what my thought here my, my thoughts are actually it doesn't really matter and when you're going for for picking players in fantasy baseball when players are close enough and have a similar skill, and especially if they play a similar position, which they both do, they're both the first baseman, you have what's called a hot spot. Now, yes, Reese Hoskins, probably a little bit better average than Miguel Sano. They're both not that great averages. Sure, Sano probably will get maybe four or five more homers, but they're essentially 30 to 
35 homer type people, batting average 220 to 240. They're essentially the same player, similar run production. They're not going to steal. It's the same player. So take away the the name and the stat. Take away the name, and you're left with very similar stats. The answer is it doesn't matter. It's whoever is available later, right? If you're going and their ADP is in the twelfth round, the end of the twelfth round. If you're in the thirteenth, fourteenth round, right? It's possible that one person will be there, one person will not be there. If you need a player that fits this profile a first baseman that is going to have that kind of home run, that kind of batting average, and that would fit your team. doesn't really matter, and you probably can't even pick who it is. Just pick whoever is left. And the reason why a hot spot works where you have multiple guys in the same spot is because it doesn't it doesn't you don't don't pick players in fantasy baseball. Pick stats and needed components. And if that's the kind of thing you want to target, I know that if there's two or three players with the same stats around the same place, there'll be somebody who really loves Hoskins and will jump them up around. And then other people in the league might slip and not take one player. Maybe for one draft you'll get Hoskins. Maybe for another draft you'll get Sano. So I wouldn't spend much time really evaluating them because I think they're really similar. They all have similar type risks or something. Um, take the player who's available to you at the latest. I think that's that's the way to play this kind of group and identify, say, okay, I've got a first baseman 30 home run type player in this round and plan out where you think the hot spots are. I've got three players similar. I'm going to go for power in this round. I'm going to go for speed in this round. Just plan it out and take the guy who's available latest. That'll increase your overall team's value in the end. Uh, let's talk about a guy who is the – I'll go first on this. He is the biggest bargain, according to the ATC projections of all corner infielders, Eduardo Escobar. Escobar is a player who's going – he's worth about $10, and he's going for – auction equivalent. It's quite a big bargain. You can wait till the 20th round to get a guy who should be going quite a a bit earlier. Now, everyone saw Escobar's 2019 35 homers, and he screamed regression, and might he did. In 2019, he hit 35 homers, only five homers in 2020, which is an equivalent of an 11 homer year. Uh, and we saw what happened. His home run to fly ball rate, which was 12% the year before, jumped to 15 and back down to 6%. That was the regression. Um, but on the batting average side, I would say that 2020 was more unlucky than 2019 was lucky. He had a 244 batter, uh, BABIP. Altogether, his average exit velocity was up by one mile an hour. I kind of think that it was more a case of unluckiness last year than luckiness the year before. And if you just project what he's been doing his whole career, he's a mid-250s batting average, not fantastic. Low 20s homers, right? But strong RBIs and runs, depending upon where he bats in the lineup. He is pretty stable here. Uh, he's about an average inter-standard deviation, uh, inter-production standard deviation at about $3.5. He's somebody that I think is pretty safe to get your 20 homers. Don't expect 2019, but if you just take the projected stats that every projection is doing, you're going to get a value bargain. It's just a value for the dollar amount. Um, And that's the reason I like him. There's nothing special about him other than people are not valuating him correctly at all. Derek, am, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. Eduardo Escobar is the type of guy that, I often find myself targeting in drafts, especially deeper leagues. You know, his uh, his ADP it looks like is 60th among quarter infielders, 
And, and the bad X has him as like, I think, 27th or 28th among quarter infielders. Like he's just better than than people are treating him as because of because he's boring, I think, in large part because he's boring and because, you know, he's coming off this bad year. But it was a small sample size year. Um, some of the peripherals, at least, were basically exactly in line with what they've always been. There were a lot of bad luck indicators like that BABIP. And so, you know, he's just a guy that people look at. They say, well, he's boring and I don't see a lot of upside. And so why am I going to take Eduardo Escobar? And, and that's exactly why you should take him, because people aren't going to take him where he belongs. Absolutely well said. I agree 3,000%. Ruvain, you agree also? I'm going to be the recency bias guy here. Um, his numbers for last year were very similar to the numbers that he had in 2016, 2017. Yes, he can get to that 20 home run plateau, but the batting average is not that good. He is turning, th- he's going to be 32. Um, and um, his hard hit rate contact was down. His home run to fly ball rate contact uh, last year was down. They're both down about 10 points compared to 2019. I know 2019 was his career year, but still it was down. He played also, he played 47 games last year at third base. He's not shortstop eligible anymore. So he's only eligible at third base right now. That also may make people shy away because a lot of people are looking for position eligibility here, and he used to be eligible both at short and third. So that may actually play into some people's minds about this as well. Okay. Uh, last couple of players. Uh, Yuli Gurriel, interesting player. He got good at a very late age. He's 37 years old. Um, the bad X thinks he's garbage. What do you think, Derek? <laughs> I think he's garbage. <laughs> um, I thought I thought he was garbage last year. He was one of the guys that the Bat X hated the most relative to the Bat and other systems last year, I think, and it was completely right. Um, oddly enough, last year was kind of a career year for him in terms of a lot of his StatCast metrics, um, but they still are not very good, and I really just think he's a complete fraud. I think he's a complete fraud in everything he does. Um, like his 2019 was just so fraudulent, even his 2017 his 2018, like, I think he was overperforming a little bit then. Um, and I think it all came crashing down last year. And I'm, I'm basically, uh, I don't want to say buying the bottom. Cause I don't think he's like, I don't think he's going to put up, you know, a 281 Wobo with a 230 batting average again, but I don't think he's going to be very good. He's not a guy that I have any interest in at his ADP or really anything else. Like, he, he's going ahead of Eduardo Escobar. Like, give me Escobar literally every single time. Oh, yeah, no question. I prefer Escobar to, to Yuli. Um, Ruvain, do you have such a disdain for the Astros' first baseman? Yeah, I just find it, you know, very um, apropos that you mentioned him garbage and garbage can and all that. The only guy you mentioned garbage <laughs> about was the, happened to be the Astro guy here. Um, he's turning 37. The lineup is getting old. George Springer's not there. Yes, his Babbitt was down last year. He was still on pace for about 18 home runs or so, but his home run to fly ball rate was low. He he went opposite field less, and that's usually where his power is. His, most of his peripherals were the same, so that's it's not that bad. But, I mean, age regression, the lineup is not as good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not buying uh, Guriel this year. It's funny. I, I don't have such a disdain for, for this guy. Um, yes, he's getting older, and I think the main issue is age because – you know, it, look at the type of player he is. Um, 299 average, 291, 298. Yes, he was bad at 232 last year, but those other numbers were in the 290s. Um, he also had a 235 Babbitt last year, so, you know, that, that was part of it. How about home runs? 18, 13, 31 in that great year. He had was on the pace for 16 homers. Um, you know, it, the 31 was the outlier, but he's pretty much, if you look at his career, he's a 290 hitter with... 
you know, is mid-teens homers. And if you give that projection with a little bit of uh, age regression, you get a guy who's going to hit mid-teen, mid to low-teen homers and a 20, 270 batting average, something like that. ATC has him 17 homers, 267 batting average. Depends where he bats in the lineup. He can still be in the line for uh, a lot of runs and RBIs. Obviously, Springer's out of there, so maybe there's a little bit less to knock in, but I don't see them as such a garbage player. I see them as as somebody that, uh, especially if you're okay with homers, if he fits, he's got to fit your portfolio. If you need it's a hint more of average, you're okay with steals, you're okay with power, you just want a guy for value. If the guy falls low enough, I think he's fine. He's going for an ADP of 18th round, and he's a value, according to ATC, at the 18th round. I wouldn't take him unless the portfolio fits. So again, he's not a guy I'm targeting because I don't. I think I'm gonna need a different type of port, a di- different type of profile than him. But I'm not opposed to taking him at that price. If if that make if that makes sense to you, Derek? No. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that I think that makes sense to me. I mean, I guess in theory, like when you lay it out, sure. Um, but I just I don't see a scenario where I'm up on the clock. And and Yuli Gurriel is the top guy on my board. Like, there's always going to be someone I'm going to well, want more. You know, than you know him. what? There's another 37 year old third baseman who's around the same ADP, and that's Justin Turner. I mean, are you jumping at Justin Turner or are you jumping at Yuli Gurriel? I mean, I'll take Turner, Turner. every single. I think yeah. Turner. Time. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, Yuli Gurriel, Yuli Gurriel reminds me of uh, the the profile of like Nick Markakis. We're talking about a guy who's gonna, if he's batting in the heart of the lineup, he's gonna knock in runs and hit and score runs. He's not gonna hit a lot of power. We're talking 15 homers, but a decent batting average. Nick Markakis was extremely useful in fantasy. I mean, you can get a cheap guy, a prospect, and say give it a shot. Gurriel has no upside, but if you need the volume. They're useful in fantasy. I I I would be happy to play him. Uh, you know, week week after week to get the counting stats and uh, of of the run production and just to keep the batting average from going to hell. Um, I I think he's useful. He's he's useful, but he's not interesting. Um, and he's not that interesting for me to 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 really buy like Escobar is. Um, again, just as I said before, if the if I need that profile at that spot. I'm not shying away from him, but he's probably not going to end up on a lot of teams of mine because I think I'm going to need a different set of of uh, values, a different set of what he can do at that spot. All right. Uh, let's talk about two more first basemen here, Brandon Belt and Joey Votto. Very interesting. Uh, Brandon Belt, both of them actually the bad X prefers to the bat. Um, what are you thought about these getting older players? Belt is thirty going into thirty three uh, age thirty three season. Votto thirty seven, but you know, he has what a long track record for him. Derek, thoughts on the pair? I love both of them, honestly. Like the, these are very much my kind of guys. The guys that people you know don't like because they're old and they're boring and they go way too late in drafts because they don't have, you know, the quote unquote upside, but especially in deeper formats, you know, really deep mixed leagues, uh, NL only leagues. I, I think these guys are great. And like you noted, the bat X likes them more than the bat, which means there is something to like in their stat cast data. Um, you know, in the, in the recent history of, of what they've done and you look at it, Brandon Belt and Joey Votto, they did some really good things last year. Brandon Belt's barrel percentage was 97th percentile. You know, Joey Votto, his his launch angle on his hardest hit balls was 99th percentile. His exit velocity on fly balls went from 
25th percentile in 2019, back up to 50th percentile in uh, in 2020. You know, he uh, he had a 56th percentile exit velocity um, in terms of the, the percentage of balls that he hit in the air at 100 miles an hour. You know, his his max exit velocity was 87th percentile. Like, yeah, these guys are, are older and boring and, and whatever, um, but, like, they're still able to contribute. They're still, you know, legitimately good Major League Baseball hitters that people just aren't taking in drafts because they're old and boring, and it's a mistake. Yep, moving. Well, Brandon Belt was on pace for t- 25 homers, 90 RBIs, which he never did before. Joey Votto was on pace for 25 homers, 70 RBIs. Uh, Brandon Belt, he had uh, he only had three more. This is one thing about Brandon Belt is his injuries. Everyone's always concerned about Brandon Belt's injuries. He actually had a bone spur removed from his right heel in October. Um, he's only had three seasons of 150 games or more played, and he was on pace for that last year. So it just goes to show that if he's healthy, he's actually a very productive player. Uh, Joey Votto, he had the highest barrel rate since 2015. A home run to fly ball rate in 2020 was back where it was back when in, from 2008 to 2017. So, I mean, all these numbers look good for both of them. Um, both of them are great values at where you can get them right now. I actually think you probably get more value at a belt just a little bit than Votto, only because of his age and as long as he stays healthy. And if he stays healthy, he's actually got a decent lineup. Mikey Strzemski's there. He actually has some protection in the lineup which he didn't really have that much before um question on belt is he going to be booted out of first base for either um you know the the, with the catcher posey taking some reps at first or wilmer flores uh going to first base is, is there a playing time aspect you know he's a lefty um you have mashers of uh, of lefties in there is he gonna be a platoon a strong side platoon but is he gonna end up a platoon role because he you know especially with the injuries he hasn't accumulated a lot of at bats over his career it's it's very interesting what they're gonna do there because the, the the giants have a lot of prospects coming up they they're running out of room to put these players belt is actually a guy that they can probably wait until the middle to the end of this year and try to trade he's got one year left on his contract his contract expires in 2022 now it's not a not that friendly it's actually a pretty friendly contract it's only averaging about 14.6 million per year so he's 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 kind of cheap he's a lefty hitter you know all these play into Maybe the Yankees thinking about getting if there's an injury issue there because he would play very well at Yankee Stadium. Oh my God, he would. I mean, I mean that that's even more reason to like him. If we think he's going to get out of Oracle Park midseason potentially, yeah. literally anywhere yeah. else would yeah, be an yeah, upgrade. Yeah. But he, he remember he's under contract until the end of 2022, so you're, you'd have to give up a, you know a decent amount because they'd have to. They're basically going to say they're dumping salary to, in order to trade him. Yeah, um, I prefer Votto to Belt. Um, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm projecting Votto for a 255 average, which I know he had a bad year last year, but this is a guy who's had a just an amazing career with the batting average. Projecting for 20 homers, some decent run production because he'll still be in the heart of the Cincinnati lineup, and anybody who's in the middle of the lineup is going to have a good run production thing. And even at at all that, you know, just 20 homers, just 255 batting average, he is a five dollar player going for you know last two three rounds. Um, I like him better. Belt, uh, I just worry about the situation in San Francisco in terms of the playing time. Otherwise, um, they're pretty similarly priced. And if you believe the projections, which are similar to both, I have Belt also uh, at a $5 value or so, uh, even even with some limited playing time. I have Belt for only 474 at-bats, similar homers, similar batting average. Um, but... They're similar players. And the same thing, same comment I made earlier when you had Hoskins and Sano. 
It's a hot spot. One of these guys might bump up to the 24th round. One of these guys could go all the way down and be available in the 29th, 30th round. It's If you like that profile and if you believe that the projections are similar, just pens, don't write, I'm going to target Belt or I'm going to target Votto. Write Belt slash Votto on your preparation list. And you know, here's a hot spot. I've got a first base that can that can fit there. One other point, though, about these guys, they're very good for what's called return on investment. Return on investment is the amount of profit you think you're going to make on a player. So it's the cost, uh, it's the projected value of what he's going to be minus the acquisition cost of what you pay for him, divided by you know what you have to you what you have to pay for him. And when guys who don't have to pay have to pay a lot for it, these are guys who are essentially a dollar, two dollars, you know, at the end of the draft. It doesn't take much profit to make on these guys because when you do the division and you divide by a very low number, you get a very high number, right? You can you can be a high return on investment for making a big profit or for just simply costing very little. Uh, I think that these guys are excellent investments. And in fantasy baseball, you don't need a guy like this to jump up and be a $20 player. All you need is to find seven, eight players that are going to give you a $5 bargain there. And then you'll get that one lucky guy that makes it for you somewhere in the middle. You need to hit a lot of singles to score runs. You don't need that homer. And these guys are the types that could do it. I don't think these guys are wonderful guys. I like Escobar much better for the value. These are just positive values. But you should get that mindset into your head that uh, it's about return on on investment uh, all there. Agree, Ruben? Yeah, good. <laughs> I agree. I I agree, and actually, we actually use Joey Votto as part of our strategy for drafting. We were in an auction, ah, yes. and we don't want to wait until the very end. Because if we wait until the very end, yeah. and someone gets him really cheap, we don't want it to go cheap. If we have we have a corner infield already, we have first base, we want him out there. We want him on the board because if we can't get him or he can't fit us, we don't want someone else to have a profit on because it just hurts us. That is a very, very, very good point. Um, in a draft, it's it's just a matter of who's available. But in an auction, if you wait for the end, somebody is going to end up with Brandon Belt for a dollar or off the bench. If you wait to the end, Votto is not. If you nominate Votto for a dollar, okay, he's not going to go for a dollar. He'll go for three. And when he's three dollars— if he's only worth $5 projected auction value, you're basically capping the amount of profit that somebody else wants to get, right? You don't have to buy him. And by the way, if you got him for a dollar, yippee You got a $1 player who's worth a couple dollar bargain. But you make sure that that profit is either in your hands or can't be gotten in somebody else's hand by nominating them much earlier in the process than you think. It's good to identify players in an auction that you want to stop the value, for, uh, stop a good bargain, who you may not want, or but you're happy that you're going to get. So that's another good lesson. Very, very good point, Ruvain. Anything to add to this uh, um, or about anybody else in the corner infield, Derek? No, I mean, I, I think that's a great point, obviously. Auction dynamics, I think, are something that, uh, you know, people don't don't understand like there's not a lot of people who talk about it i mean I, i've learned a lot about it just from listening to you guys because you're one of the few people that really talk about this stuff and i think it makes complete sense the way uh the way you kind of break it down no thanks for that uh before we wrap up any any other observation about the corner infield it seems to me that there are nice hot spots depending upon the statistics that you want there obviously is going to be a lot of power up there you got pete alonzo got guys like matt olson you got guys on top, um, Matt Chapman, uh, give you some power. Um, there's super stable guys at the top, Freddie Freeman, Jose Ramirez, who gives you the whole package. Um, f to me, Ramirez is a good pick because of the combo-ness. Otherwise, 
If you don't like Devers like I do, I'm inclined to wait quite a bit at the corner infield position and wait till he's barred. Like, I'm fine with going for other positions elsewhere, getting getting a Josh Bell and getting a cheap Eduardo Escobar at the bottom, taking a chance on these other guys, and maybe poking and putting a little bit more capital into my middle infield pitching or outfield. Uh, I feel like this is a spot that you can probably wait a little bit more if you don't get something that really works for you up top. Do you agree, Derek? Any other thoughts about the, the field? No, I completely agree. I think that makes total sense. Okay. Ruvain, anything to add? Yeah, I'm going to add one thing. There are a lot of corner infielders who also qualify in the outfield. So if you're looking for that fourth or fifth outfield, sometimes getting this corner infield who qualifies in the outfield also may benefit you as well. Okay. Let's do some mailbag questions, a couple of, de- a couple of good ones. Alex asks, at the end of the draft, do you go for the hitter with the highest aggregate projected rates, like we're talking about homer to plate appearances, but more questionable playing time, or the hitter with a job, but some disagreement on their skills between the system, like maybe the bat likes him, the bat X doesn't, the ATC likes him, whatever, whatnot. Uh, Very good question, Alex. What are your thoughts, Derek? This is something that I always struggle with um, because generally throughout, mo- I mean, throughout most of the draft, I'm, I'm drafting for value. You know, I will take a guy like Joey Votto, like you said, for, for a dollar because he's worth seven and people don't want to take him. Um, and, and a lot of that reason is because late in a draft, people want to take upside shots. They want to pay a dollar for a guy that could be worth $25. They want to get the, the hot young prospect or, you know, whoever. And, uh... Like, personally, I, I really think value is is what you want the most of. I don't have a problem once it gets late, especially in a shallower league, taking a shot on those, you know, high upside prospect type guys. When you get into deeper leagues, you know, uh, NL only leagues, really deep mixed leagues, you know, I, I really think going with value is is the right way to go. But I'm curious your guys' thoughts on on how you balance you know, strict projection value versus versus upside. And especially when we're talking about playing time upside, like if the skills are there, you know, and, and he's just projected, you know, to be behind somebody or, or whatever, um, I might be more willing to take a shot on a guy like that, especially a pitcher where where injuries are so so much more frequent and there's more ways that, that he can, you know, find his way into playing time. Ruben, you want to go first on this? Yeah, I, I you know, go value, high value, and playing time. The, the playing time will always work itself out. Last year, both me and I were very high on Dominic Smith. He had no clear path to playing time, zero. He he didn't fit at first base because Alonzo was there. The outfield was stacked. They had Cespedes at the time, and there was no place for him to play. But his value and his upside was there, so we 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 drafted him. We picked him up early, and we had him on most of our teams because usually playing time works itself out. Almost 50% of all players will get hurt at some point during the course of the season. Playing time will work itself out. So, yes. So, uh, agree that high-skilled players are going to end up with, with more playing time. One of the things that ATC does that you might notice if you've used it is that it doesn't treat them independently. Like, playing time is playing time and skills are skills. Um, they're correlated. If you have good skills, they're going to work itself out. If there's one injury on a team, like let's say Jared Kalenic, okay, of the Mariners. Let's say the Mariners weren't planning on bringing him up. But let's say there's an injury or two. There's a much better chance that he's going to be up there, right? There's not a lot that, that, that has to go for him to be up. And that's why a projection shouldn't just be the playing time and skills. 
there should be a little bit of a bump for playing time, and you'll see ATC do that. Dominic Smith, you mentioned last year, was projected for more playing time than most, which is why we valued him more. So the answer is that the reason why I would value somebody more is because in the projections, you'll see the rates translate to a bump in a bump in the uh, playing time. And then you can compare apples to oranges, right? You can see whether a 600 at-bat player with mediocre things balances to a guy with good rates, but a little bit of, an, a, little bit of a bump playing time to show the upside. And then it's a matter of, of, of looking at it. Um, in general, again, it, it should be about managing risk in your team. Ron Chandler has the BAB system where he wants to have a certain amount of prospects, not more than a certain amount of prospects, not more than a certain amount of downside players, so on and so forth. Um, you need to look at your roster. When you're at the end, if you've got a very safe team because you drafted safe players, go with the guy with the, with the bigger upside in the playing time a little bit more. If you have a team that has some risks in it, take a guy like uh, like uh, Nick Markakis type who's going to bat in the middle of the lineup, has some moderate skills, but will give you the volume. So you know, I said a lot there, which is basically influence projections a little bit and then do some risk management as far as, as, far as who to take if the values are within reason. Like if you've got a, a dollar or two difference between players, pick the one that fits your team more. Um, but obviously if there's going to be a huge difference in value, you're going to go with that. Uh, John asks, uh, how sensitive is your modeling? I think it's for Derek. How sensitive is your modeling to games played projections versus other variable assumptions. So is games played a factor in your model? So for me, I don't project my own playing time. I rely on the Fangraphs depth charts. You know, Fangraphs has a team of guys who, you know, their job is to focus on this and look at all the different roster dynamics and figure out who's going to play and how much. And, uh, and so I trust them to do that more than, you know, more than more than I trust myself to do it, mostly because I don't have the time to spend on it that, you know, that they do. So, and they do a great job with it, I think. And so that's what plugs into the bat. You know, the bat projects rate stats, you know? So if, uh, if a guy is projected for 10 home runs, you know, per 100 plate appearances and the Fangraphs depth charts have him projected for 500 plate appearances, he'll project for 50 home runs. Um, and it's really as simple as that. So the playing time doesn't affect uh, the ratio production, it just, you know, impacts the, the raw stats, you know, the counting stats. All right, so ATC does project playing time. Um, but I will tell you, though, that the playing time and all the rates get applied to it are on a playing t- are on a uh, per at-bat, per plate appearance uh, perspective. They're not on a games played. The games played is a projected games played per at-bat, not the other way around. So in terms of how sensitive, the answer is it's not. It just falls out of the model from being projected separately. Um, I hope that answers your question there. Uh, MS asks, uh, I know ATC already does this to an extent, but what are the pros and cons to aggregating projection systems you like to create a single stat line that uses both? Um, I guess he's just asking in general, what is the benefit of aggregating projections? Um, I mean, my thoughts, well, we know that it works because ATC is one of the most stable projection systems out there, being an aggregating of other models. Um, You get uh, less of a chance of picking a bad player. You get more of a chance of picking a good player. What you don't get is, oh, my God, I've pictured this guy as a huge bargain, and he's going to end up a big bargain. You're going to get less of a magnitude of profit and more of a frequency of profit. You'll get the player directionally right more. 
So I know that this guy is a bargain. Even though it's a $2 bargain, I'm going to buy him because I see he's a bigger value than the market. Might not be that he's a bigger bargain, a huge bargain, but he'll be positive. And for the negative ones, you'll get rid of the negative ones more. The frequency is what is helped more. But I got news for you: the the frequency, the number of the hit rate, if you will, is more important than getting the magnitude right. And the reason is as follows: if you want to, if you let's say you picked uh, um, Eduardo Escobar, right? Your value is eight dollars. The market is one dollar. It doesn't really matter if your value is 8 and the market is 10 or the market is 7. You're all going to pick them as so long as you're high. And whatever profit you make on a guy is not compared to your system. It's compared to the market, right? The profit you make on any player is, is what you pay for him, right? It's the profit you make versus what you pay for him, not what your projection system says. So it doesn't really matter how much of a difference you are to the market, it matters whether you are bigger. Now, obviously, the more you are higher, the more of a chance you'll get him. You'll get him in more leagues, but you'll still get the same amount of profit from him all the time. So in that sense, it's much better to aggregate projections because it increases the ability of you to pick the right players, and it has doesn't really change the ability for you to profit on players. Thoughts, Derek? I mean, so so I love ATC. I think ATC is awesome, but I my projection system is is not an aggregate. So I got to go to bat for it a little bit. So <laughs> you're completely right. <laughs> you're completely right that when you aggregate projections, um, you are generally going to add more mean accuracy. Um, every projection system has, um, you know, their own way of projecting things and their own biases. You know, they're going to be you know, outlier players in every system. And what a, you know, uh, an aggregate system will do is it'll, it'll kind of wash out any potential biases. So you're not going to get burned potentially, um, you know, by those biases, you will be right more often in the mean, but it's like you said, you won't have as wide of a spread. The magnitude won't be there. Um, and, and for me, as someone who builds these systems, I kind of view, view these things as, as something I almost want, at least to an extent, you know, some of the things that, you know, get washed out in an aggregate that I put into the bat are things that I put in there because, because I want them to be in there. The strength of schedule stuff that the bat has that other systems don't have, when you average it all together, you know, that gets diluted. The stat cast stuff that the bat X has that other systems don't have, when you average it all together, that stuff gets diluted. And so I think that is, um, one of the benefits of, of a non-aggregate system is that you do have those special features that are unique to a particular system that can help you hit on a particular player um, that you may not be able to hit on uh, with an aggregate. But obviously, I love ATC. I think aggregates are great. Um, I also think the bat and the bat X are great too. <laughs> right. Now, this is a great discussion and, and good that we can argue both sides of it. Um, the, the, the real answer, um, MS, is um, you have to know what the projection system does and, wh and, and, and what you can get out of it. Um, if you see a bargain in ATC, it's probably a bigger bargain than you think because it means all the other projections are seeing it too, and, and it's, probably, it's a, probably a good thing. But if you, if you just look at ATC as your only source, you're probably going to miss some players that you might want to study up more. You want to take a look at what ATC is as a base to say, okay, this is my base standard. This is what I would generally do without anything else. But see what the bat 
gives as this is a player to look at. Maybe Steamer pops up at, as a player and says, wait a minute, this guy is going to steal 50 bases. I better look at him and see if I like him. Use the different projections to know um, what players to look at and know what each projection is doing and how to work it. So what I'm saying is there's a value in looking at both. Um, there's a value looking at an excellent projection system as a standalone, and there's a value in aggregating them to make sure that you don't go crazy on any one projection. Like if if, if, if the bat shows $28 for a certain player and you only see $20 for ATC, you might not want to jump all the way to that level, but just understand that there's upside that, you know what, maybe – Maybe I'll hint it and I'll give it an extra dollar or two. Um, and when you when you look at it that way, that's the best way to really play. Is to use the, all the tools available to you, know how to use them, and, and know to put it. Ruvain, your your thoughts? Can you break the tie here or uh, or add to the discussion? <laughs> um, actually, I'm going to just repeat what I said earlier in the show, which I said: look at a whole bunch of stuff, compare it, and you have to see what you're comfortable with. Because some people are more comfortable using the ATC, some people are more comfortable using the bat and the bat X. It's not being one. It's not one or the other. It's putting it all together and knowing how to use them. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, Ruvain, uh, injury update. Go for it. All right, I got two players. First of all, I'm going to mention C.J. Crone, who's actually a free agent. He was actually cleared last week for full activity. Um, he was injured last year. He actually had surgery. Um, he had surgery. When was this? He had surgery in two, in 2020. Um, he only played 13 games last year. He had surgery on his left knee. He doesn't have a team. He has to show that he's healthy before he gets a team. Another guy who I'm going to mention is Hunter Green. Now, I'm mentioning him because there's a lot of trade rumors swirling around the Reds, and they're starting pitching. Are they going to trade somebody? Hunter Green was their number two pick, was the Reds' number two pick in 2017. He had Tommy John surgery in 2019 and hasn't pitched since 2018. But the other day, it was said that he regained his velocity and was throwing around 100 miles an hour. So... If a play, a pitcher gets traded, the Reds may think about bringing him up, and he may be a guy just to have on your radar. So Derek Carty is one of the sharpest minds in the fantasy baseball community. Uh, he does daily projections also on Roto-Grinders. So uh, for those of you who do DFS, uh, you can get the bat and the bat X on a daily basis, which uh, can earn you a lot of cash in the short term. Uh, and they're available on Fangraph's website in the annual basis, uh, as, lo as well as ATC, all on the same page there. Uh, Derek, uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, where everything else about you, where we can read your stuff and look at your stuff and follow you on Twitter. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Derek Hardy. You can find, uh, like you said, the bat season long at Fangraph's, the bat DFS over at Roto Grinders and the bat sports betting at EV Analytics. All right, Ruvain, uh, tell us about you. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I'll tweet out daily injury updates during the offseason, during the regular season. I also have a weekly injury article on Rotoballer. I'm Ariel Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. The ATC projections are up on Fangraphs. They're up on CBS Sportsline. Um, I also write for Rotoballer. Might even see some ATC projections come there. Uh, so check those out. And, of course, uh, you can listen to me and Ruvain weekly right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Derek, this was a fantastic episode. We got great discussion about projections, deep dives into a lot of corner infielders. Uh, really a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for joining the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another episode deep, diving deep into ATC projections, undervalued players, more strategy section, more injury updates, and whatnot. 
From all of us here at Beat the Shift, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.